Welcome to Keeping Your Together in a Stressed World with Michelle Post and Scott Grossberg. Each week, we explore down and dirty ways to stop awfulizing, catastrophizing, going down the rabbit hole, and moving through all the craziness that is happening right now. We're here to create a community of like-minded people as we give you tips, tricks, and techniques for keeping sane in an unhinged world. And now, here are your hosts, Michelle Post and Scott Grossberg. Hey, everybody. This is Scott Grossberg, one of your co-hosts for the podcast, Keeping Your Shit Together in a Stressed World. And I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Post. Hey, Michelle. Hello, Scott. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> uh, and here we are, believe it or not, already in the middle of May. I can't uh, believe it. Yeah. Crazy, huh? And yes. uh, the world is opening up. And yes, uh, we're, t- we're all kind of at least people I know, including uh, my wife and I taking little trips here and there, although mm-hmm. my wife's on a big trip right now, mm-hmm. uh, still being still still masking to a certain degree where we go and being protective. Have you noticed things opening up a little bit more, Michelle? Oh, Scott, it's a little scary. So I am like freshly, scary opening up. Yeah, I'm freshly back from the Tri-City area of Tennessee, where it borders with North Carolina, kind of close to Asheville, North Carolina. And I have to tell you, flying into Charlotte, very few people wearing masks. I might've been the only person wearing a mask on the plane, on the planes. And then very few people um, masking indoors. Um, there, we had a, I did a training on, uh, the Corona coaster, like the Corona coaster. How do you support grieving people when right. grief isn't canceled that, you know, thanks to, uh, Morris Baker who sponsored it, their funeral home in the area. And we had some pretty live discussions, um, really interesting about just how health issues became so politicized. Right. And so the idea of wearing a mask no longer became a health issue. It became a political issue. Right. You, you know, that kind of thing. So we had some real live discussions about how that affected people in the area. They were a very low incident area. But anyway, my point is <laughs> hopefully I wasn't exposed so far, no symptoms. But, yeah. you know, it was a full weekend of being around a, a lot of people who were unmasked. And, um, I don't know their health habits. You know, that's unusual well, I, for me. I, if I'm unmasked it, around somebody, it's because I know their their habits kind of thing. Yeah. It, you know, it's interesting that you use the term politicized because I'm going to go out on a limb and use a stronger word. Oh. And it's it, I've noticed it weaponized. Oh, that's a good point. Weaponized, yeah. It, and sadly, you know, I, I I don't care about the politics part of, of the world, frankly, um, for a variety of reasons as much as mm-hmm. I care about the weaponization, which came mm-hmm. out of politics. It came out of politics, and, and the elect- right? And, and you know, mm-hmm. so it's ironic, but it's, I, I still wear my mask when I go out again, mm-hmm. mostly depending on where I'm going, as you said, mm-hmm. if I don't know Me who too. people are or where they are right. at the grocery right, right. store, things right. like that, I, I do wear a mask and I get stared at sometimes, not all I the do time. Too. I do too. It's almost like, what the hell it's are like, you doing? Yeah. And, and I just, I, I'm ignoring it. What do you recommend yeah. though, from a therapeutic standpoint, Right. when we go into this thing and there are still some folks, and I'll readily admit everybody, I was a germaphobe 
going before <laughs> had nothing to do with this. Right. Um, and I've joked before that Howie Mandel, okay, he's worse than I am. Okay. But I'm right behind him. It's like, guys, yeah. I I do a lot of public speaking. I do a lot I of personal too. appearances, or at least did before uh, coronavirus and yeah. the, the social physical distancing. I couldn't afford to be sick. Right, right. It's just and, I couldn't afford the downtime. Right. And yeah, when so, you work for yourself, you you don't get sick time, you know. Yeah, and so when you couple mm-hmm. that then with the added challenge of it's not just the symptoms of coronavirus. Right. If, for example, right, I tested positive, whether I have symptoms or not, I'm then isolated and quarantined. Right. So I'm ta- I'm literally pulled out of the game. Right for two weeks. Yep. Yep. And so at that point, it's like, right. just freaking stay away from me. Right. And uh, so I have a colleague. She's uh, not a close colleague. And then I met another woman this weekend, both who have long COVID symptoms. Okay. So long COVID symptoms, I kid you not. My colleague caught coronavirus around Christmas. She started getting better. Um, about two weeks into it, she started getting low grade fevers and stuffy head and what she describes as some of the worst headaches of her life. And since then she's been battling severe fatigue and this was end of December. It is now mid May. And she, um, I, I, I don't know whether she was vaccinated or not. That's not the point, but the point is that she thought she was getting over coronavirus and here she is middle of May and has not been able to work for five months. And, you know, was able to apply for disability, you know, but it's still miserable. doesn't even go out to the grocery store because it's so exhausting. And then this, this woman that I met this weekend, she was there carrying a tank um, on oxygen and had I'm glad you clarified that because as soon as you said tank, <laughs> I'm like thinking, oh, really? No, 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 no. Yeah, it was Tennessee. So um, lovely, ugh, the most lovely people at this conference. It just, I love going to Johnson City, Tennessee. It's my third time there. And the people are just so hungry and interested in being really wonderful, compassionate caregivers, be it in the hospital, in hospice, for the VA, in private practice, as a coach, whatever. They're just really hungry. So anyway, this woman came up to me and she said, I'm really glad we talked a little bit about coronavirus because for a lot of people, they just, they got in and out of it like a bad cold. But for someone like me, I've been carrying around an oxygen tank. And at one point they thought I was going to die and thank God I'm not there, but I'm tired all the time. I have a headache off and on most of the time and I'm really pushing myself. I haven't started working again, but I'm pushing myself to get back out there. And we don't talk a lot about long haul COVID symptoms and they don't affect everybody. It's a small number of people, but that's the thing is I don't want to be responsible for giving that to somebody. And I don't want to be, I don't want to suffer from it either. And like you as a speaker, I I don't want to get sick. And, you know, the Asian American, Asian community after H1N1, the first, the bird flu, um, you'll see it's common for a lot of um, international folks to be wearing 
masks on a plane, but yeah, oh, ab- ab- absolutely. Like, why the funky and, stares, people in the comments? Like, if you don't well, want to wear a mask, that's okay. But why? So, my, why my, do you have to comment question, to me? <laughs> my question before we get into today's topic, which is very exciting for you and actually <laughs> us, um, but you know, my question is help someone like me, for example, yeah. okay. where even it had nothing to do with COVID. It's like, yeah. I don't want to be sick to because sick. I can't take the downtime. Right. Um, and I take care of myself. I work out, I exercise. Yeah. How do, and I don't, is it a social anxiety off shoot? Is it, what do you call, what, what do you call someone like me yeah. who says, I don't want to be sick and therefore I'm drawing boundaries. I'm setting lines right. in the sand. If you're right. sick, don't be around me. If you got a cough, don't be around me. Right, Again, right, right. this is pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, um, right, right, right. Because I need to stay productive. You don't like getting sick, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't like getting mm-hmm. sick and what the mm-hmm. ramifications of that are. And right. how best do you have like a quick tip yeah. for someone to say, hey, look, the world's opening back up the exposures are going to increase. Sure. So, you know, think about how infrequently you've had a cold since isolation and, and, and wearing masks. And this is a real lesson in, um, assertiveness and being your own best advocate and resourcer and taking lessons from other cultures, wear a mask, take your preventative stuff, have your zinc lozenges, uh, a flight attendant swab the inside of their nostrils with uh, neosporin, or they, you know, that's one of the tricks that they've gotten over the years. I learned that trick sick. from, my, I learned that trick from my stepmom who was mm-hmm. a flight attendant. Mm-hmm. So, you know, planes are great once they're in the air, but not when you're in the long waiting tunnel that is unair conditioned and uncirculated and not before the plane engines start. So take good care of yourself. It's a less, I, I would say, I'm not going to stigmatize somebody that is conscientious of not wanting to get sick. Um, I just encourage you to find a way to stay out in the world and take good care of you. And, you know, if people need to make comments to you or give you funny looks, it's, it's a real chance in saying, I, I don't care. I'm going to take care of me. I'm the one that has to live inside my skin and I'm going to take care of me. So that's, that would be my, <laughs> oh, we have a visitor today. Is this Miss Presley Pearl? The world's no, most interesting this, dog? This is, this is Eddie. I'm, I'm dog sitting today. You're dog sitting. This, Hi, this, Eddie. by the way, those of you listening to the show cannot see, see this, but I will tell you this face Eddie. This face is oh, absolutely that, living proof that, that some people get reborn as dogs. Oh. This is my little old man. Oh, so I'm, dog, I'm dog sitting him. Oh, Eddie does look like a little old man. Yes. He's like a little Zen master. <laughs> he is. He just I've often said, <laughs> I've often said if I could, this is a little rude, but if I could get, choose to be reincarnated, I would want to come back as a dog of two gay parents. That's what I want. I've never, okay. <laughs> I've never, all my gay men friends treat their dogs like little princesses, even more than my heterosexual friends. It's a stereotype. I know I'm sorry, wow. but I just have to say, I've I never heard you back. generalize like that before. I never have, but I'm just going to say it. They know me. They love me. It's their, it's their in group. They tease me all the time. No, just freaking own it. It's okay. <laughs> it is what it is. Yes. You want to come back as a dog? Of a gay to couple. Two gay, good. Of a gay couple. I do. 
That's my dream. Although I will, I will say that I'm willing to bet that dogs visiting my house don't want to leave here after that. I, I, so. I bet you and Carolyn are, are very good to your animals, but you're All in right. my lifetime, so I can't come back yet That's into true. your home. <laughs> All right. Shall, shall we move so to yes. today's topic? Sure. Um, because I'm excited for you. And oh, that you. is that th this is a preview show. Uh, it's not out live, but we wanted to give our listeners a first shot at understanding what Michelle has created. Yay. And I'm just going to, I'm going to say this, uh, Michelle has now got a book called Help Me Understand, a guide to help children understand hospitals, death, and organ cornea and tissue donation. It was written by Michelle mm -hmm. and then illustrated by, uh, is it Karen. Stothart? Karen Stothart? Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, wonderful. Yep. I, I've actually uh, had the benefit of being able to see this. Uh, oh. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful, uh, will be a hardback version for them. Uh, softback. 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 Mm -hmm. But uh, full color printed pages. It's a workbook yeah. style. Mm -hmm. And and it really is uh, wonderful. So real quickly, Michelle, mm -hmm. first, what's the book about? Okay. So as a child's children's grief specialist for decades, children are left at a very important conversations that set them up for success or failure if they're left out, especially around death, dying and a donation. Okay. And if I took for granted many times as a healthcare professional, how much I would flit in and out of all the hospitals around Southern California. I've been in all of them. Okay. So I would get called in to assist the social work service team or the nurses service team when an adult, usually sometimes a child would die and there were other children in the family and they didn't know how to prepare them to say goodbye in the hospital. And what you might not know is many ICU rooms will not allow children inside, but when somebody is dying or imminently deceased, they will make exceptions. Usually that person needs to be accompanied and there needs to be some arrangements made, right? So over and over and over again in these hospitals, I would go in and I would take for granted sometimes that all these machines and beeps and did a, that I just knew what they were because I had been in the hospitals so many times, but my very first time in my, I want to say late twenties, it was quite intimidating and scary to see a loved one connected to all these machines. And I was a young adult. And then what I found in, in doing this work for the local one legacy, the local donate life organization and doing death notification with, in conjunction with hospital staff, these kids were, not only were their adults not prepared, but the kids would get very scared if they were thrown in there, especially with uneducated adults. So this is a guide to help both the professional nursing staff, social work staff, parents who maybe have had children that have witnessed an ambulance come and pick up their loved one, or they've had a hospital visit to an ICU and they don't know how to explain all these strange machines like an IV or a warming blanket or, you know, the, the different monitors that are there, let alone the, the way a body dies and the way that organ, eye or tissue can occur. And then we've got grief and then we've got coping. So you've got your normal grief, but if there's a hospital exposure experience in there, 
I just, I could not spread myself enough to get people educated on how to help children understand what they were seeing. And once they understood what they were seeing, they could get it all aside and spend time with their loved one. And they would just be curious and playful and that kind of thing. But if they didn't understand, we could be looking at sobbing and crying and fear and real trauma memories that would get stuck in the body. So that's the point of it. How do we help children through this without those trauma memories getting stuck in the body? So I'm going to ask you a number of questions today, unscripted folks, and in no particular order. I sound like Ryan Seacrest. And in no particular order. um, As you were talking and as I was going through this book, one of the first things that hit me, and I'm going to put you on the spot here. Okay, I'll try. Because you've got a book that's an extension of you. Yes. And all the things that you've learned and the things that you want to pass on. Yes. At some point in the future, do you foresee maybe offering a supplemental online teaching course for people oh. to buy the book and you walk them through how to use this? Sure. I mean, I, I definitely have done live seminars on it. And I even wrote a chapter in the book called the handbook of traumatic loss, which if anybody buys the book, the editors get money. I get no money for you buying it, but it's a wonderful book. And I wrote on a chapter on helping children understand death and dying. So I've actually done a lot of training in the area, both with hospital staff and parents, and I've done a lot of one-on-one training. So definitely I could see myself offering a workshop to help people understand how to do it and to give them time to ask me questions. I think I have a thousand and one stories of how it's done differently, you know, depending on the age of the child and who died, but there was some life experience there. And if people want to get a hold of you, let's just do it right at the top of the, of the hour. If people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way? Uh, Through my website, which is postinternationalinc.com. That's my teaching and coaching website. And my email's on there and my phone number's on there. So that's just the easiest way. You can also link to my social media links if you want to stay in touch that way. What is the plan for release? When's that going to happen? Well, I'm self-publishing and I'm running into a few little tech hiccups in how how to get everything uploaded. So my, my hope was to have it ready for launch before today, but you know, this is 10 years in the making. Okay. So it's a 10 year or more long book. Then I had to find an illustrator about four years ago, then coronavirus hit, then editing, then a graphic designer. So now we are at the place where Karen, who has an MFA and has worked and trained in organ eye and tissue donation. Okay. So that's, we met together. So what a great Karen, my illustrator has all these little child-friendly illustration doodles in this thing. It's amazing. They're They're very cool. Yeah, she's an amazing artist. And talk about making things that are difficult subjects accessible. So after all of that, now the only hiccup is uh, I'm going to connect with a self-publishing company that I've used before for my other my other book. And then it will be available through Amazon for print on demand. And I'm hoping that will be just a matter of weeks, if not days. But we'll right. see, so, it depends so here, on my here, tech I'm- knowledge. I'm going to ask listeners, if you're interested in getting notified when the book is released, to simply get on Michelle's 
email blog. list. Mm-hmm. My email um, list on my website. Mm-hmm. And go on there. And certainly we will do our best here to notify yeah. everybody. Um, yeah. And then you'll be on the mailing list. Uh, I'm going to jump now to the book itself because it's okay. a fascinating book. Uh, but I'll tell you what actually grabbed me the most. You oh, ready? good. Yeah, I want to know. And it's, it, it's your note to parents at the uh, beginning. Yeah. And down at the beginning, down at the end, it says, remember that the number one predictor of how well the child will cope is to make sure their caregivers are coping well getting support and are physically and emotionally healthy. Yep. It's absolutely in the research. So Jay William Warden is my mentor. He's going to be 90 this year. He wrote a book called Children's Grief When a Parent Dies, was based on a longitudinal Harvard National Institute of Health grant where they studied families over the course of many, many years. And what they found was the biggest predictor of how well a child adapts in their grief is how well a surviving parent guardian adapts in their grief. So while parents often will contact me, oh, I need help for my child, I need help for my child. And then I will say to them, are you getting help for you? Oh no, I don't, I'm just concerned about them. Then I I, I try my best to explain the research. Not everybody takes me up on it. But it's absolutely true that children need a good parent that knows appropriate grief modeling and has good grief support for themselves in order to process through their own grief. So children are relying on those parents and guardians to keep their shit together. (laughs) Well, and and I've got to tell you, one of of the things that hit me having read that in the intro was your table of contents. Yeah. Uh, which I'll, I'll briefly go through. I'm not going to be exhaustive here uh, because we want people to get the book so they can see what's going on with it. But <laughs> you, you've, if, you, if you as a parent, caregiver, nurse, et cetera, took the table of contents yourself and simply used it as a check-in list. Yep. Um, because I notice in here, you've got the, the help me understand what happened in my family yep. construct. Mm-hmm. But then down below, when you talk about five senses and then later yeah. hospitals, you yeah. actually talk about sad feelings, feeling yeah. mad or angry, feeling scared or afraid, feeling happy or relieved. Yes. And, you know, we've talked before a little bit about Brene Brown and how she's currently going through the Atlas of the Heart mm-hmm. series on, mm-hmm. on HBO Max, and she's got her book out. And she talks about how important it is to actually identify correctly mm-hmm. what you're experiencing. Yes. Yes. Because so often we mislabel it. Yes. And for her, it's so in-depth, things like despair and how different that is from sadness. For my book, because it's aimed at little kids, I would say age four and a half, maybe up to 11 or 12-year-olds who will go through it much more quickly and more independently, You, I can't. I can't go to all the variety of feelings yet. I just need to identify the four basic ones, sad, mad, happy, and scared. Those are the four most feelings boil down under those four umbrellas. (laughs) Well, despair, sadness, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I I love that you've made it. I I love that you've discounted it like that, but the reality (laughs) is it's not that simple. And in fact, this is not a reading book. It's a workbook. Yes. It's a workbook. Yes. It's meant you so can when skip you, around when you in have, it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you have in it, for example, the five senses, mm-hmm. 
what I'm looking at here is you've got seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, smelling, mm -hmm. and then you're asking the kids to actually write or more importantly, draw mm -hmm. what they remember. Yeah. Yeah. And I put that in there because it's, it's a part of my work whenever I do family counseling. And I, I've had, for example, one little boy, he filled out his little worksheet with me and I noticed under smell after the death of his father that he mm -hmm. put um, fish and I was like, that's an interesting smell. Why? I, in my head, I'm thinking, why did this little boy's dad smell like fish? Why does fish remind him? And then when I asked the question, so what was it about your dad's death that reminds you of fish? That simple, right? He said, I was fishing with my grandfather when my grandfather got the call that my dad died. So every time I smell fish, I think about that day that I found out my dad yeah. died. And, you know, and, you know, we've, we've talked before in our podcast, but more importantly, even in our home retreat about the anchors that get set, mm -hmm. you know, I've got distinct memories and smell, by the way, is a huge, it's the first trigger. sense um, we have, you mm -hmm. know, cigars remind me of my grandfather pipes remind me of my father. Mm -hmm. um, at one point, I worked in a hospital for quite a long time, a regional trauma center. And I will tell you folks, no matter what you've heard, there is the smell of death. There is, there is a smell of death. And, yes. you know, I could, I, I could walk into a room or, you know, help somebody and an ambulance that came in and you just yeah. knew. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know those smells, you know, we've talked before that my, my dad died last August and there are sounds and smells and sights and sensations and things that are anchored to those days and hours of his, the last moments of his life. And uh, we, we can't get around that. And now imagine you're a child and everybody's talking. It's like, just because a child is at waist level and you're speaking at at mouth level to another adult, doesn't mean they don't hear you and that they're not yeah. trying to figure out what's going on with you. So they, they have stuff going on too, but people just assume because they're playing or they look like they're happy, which is how children, that's how children process is through play it, over and over again. Then they assume that kids are doing fine and they need help or they will develop magical philosophies about what happened or false information about what happened. Well, you know, this, this kind of brings up one of the things that we never talk about, you know, in polite company. Right. Until I was an adult, well, that's, until I was an adult. Yeah. I never even knew what a death rattle was, right? Oh, yeah. That sound that someone yeah. can make oh. a lot of the time yeah. when they're in the process of, of dying. I know. And imagine that as a kid. Mm -hmm. And that's what this book is so beautiful about is mm -hmm. to help people, help kids in particular, understand they may not be able to process it they may not put the meanings to it that we have but at least to i guess get down on paper what they're doing right right, right so the right. book can they use pens crayons, pens, crayons whatever colored colored Stick, pencils stickers? markers stickers i i think the paper should be thick enough to handle markers and not seep through to the other side that's the that's the the style i'm working on so whatever brings them the most comfort to use. 
Now, uh, I will warn you, a five-year-old with markers is a dangerous thing. So make sure it's on a surface that's washable and you're using washable markers. (laughs) Otherwise, stick with crayons, parents. (laughs) And and by the way, I've got to tell you another part of the book that jumped out at me. And then I want to explore your favorite part of the book. Oh, okay. That's like asking you to pick your favorite kid, right? It's true. Um, But one of the things I loved was where you distinguished, you didn't distinguish, you actually clarified to little kids, this is what you think a heart looks like? Yes. This is a like heart. a little heart shape. And then we have yeah. a little cartoon of an actual anatomical heart. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was really kind of fun. Karen, again, in her uh, beautiful training at, with her master's in fine arts, has done such a good job doodling the anatomy of the body in a way that's accessible to a child. So really, oh, I really wouldn't call grateful. these do- uh, doodles as a disservice to your book. Okay. Illustrations. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so at, you, the book is together. The book is done. I've been going through it. What was your favorite part of the book to work on? Well, I really loved the organ and tissue section where we compare it's not an organ like something that you'd play on at a music hall and it's not a tissue like a box of tissue you know because these are that's a common thing for kids we say a word and they associate with the word they understand so like passed away they're like oh I passed a test I passed a ball how does somebody pass away right so you need to use the real words death and died so I love the little organ and tissue analogy. And I really love the little hospital drawings, like just the machines, a warming blanket, um, the, the pulse oximeter thing that sticks on your finger and doesn't hurt you, but it monitors how your pulse goes. And then I also love the two illustration pages that Karen did on coping skill examples. So I thought those were really well done. Very, very cute, very accessible Great ideas, probably even for adults. It brings me some joy to look at those illustrations. So those are some of my favorite pieces. And I appreciate the illustrations, but what about you? Your your part of the book. Uh What was your your favorite part of the book to work on? Oh, to work on. Well, because I've been working on it for 10 years, I will say the most recent page that brought me to tears was the dedication page because I started the book before my dad died and yeah. I'm, he never got to see it. And um, part, part of my dedication is to him and my mentors and my partner and my mom and my brother and my sister-in-law that have helped me through this really difficult year. So that yeah. was very sentimental and hard to work on, but also beautifully healing for me. Yeah. In the book, and we know that it's little kids, right? Yeah. But you talk about organ, cornea, and tissue donation. Uh-huh. And I'm trying to remember back when I was a little kid, the first time I even, I, I, and I don't really have a distinct memory of that ever occurring because I don't think it was ever talked about in our family. Right. But I can tell you, I do have a distinct memory of, I just kind of like want all of me in one place. If you take things away, yeah. then I'm less of me, yeah. even though I'm dead. It's just yeah. less of me. Sure. Why is organ, why is organ, cornea, and tissue donation so important in the first place? 
So it saves lives for other people when that mitzvah or good deed matters to the person who died, right? So not many of us are in a position where we actually can save the life of another human being. And if you are maybe the ultimate recycler, (laughs) then there's lots of ways that you can gift parts or your whole body. I don't talk about whole body donation in the book to science and medicine, but we owe a lot of what we know about medicine, about pharmaceutical treatments, about the field of surgery from those brave people that do whole body donation. Now you take it a step further and some of us might know a person who is diabetic and is on, um, they're in regular treatment for that. And if they don't get a kidney transplant, they will eventually die. And it is a very, dialysis is a very disabilitating experience. You have to go for hours every other day. So it doesn't matter if you're trying to travel to Hawaii or to Spain or to Mexico, you must prearrange your, to find a dialysis center that can care for you every other day it's life-threatening to not have functioning kidneys and one kidney can save the life of a person on dialysis, Um, heart disease and heart transplants, lung COPD um, or lung cancers. Some of them can be treated by a lung transplant and these um, people who've had cornea issues and need a new cornea to see again. There was a man I met who had gone blind from cornea, cornea injury. And he was able, he like couldn't teach his son how to drive and had to find somebody else to do that for him. But in the course of his son's high school years, he was able to get a cornea transplant and he went to his son's high school graduation and could see him walk across the platform because someone generously donated their corneas. Now it's not for everybody. If you're like, oh, you know, I'm a very private person and I'm not into donation and I want all of me all together, then that's fine. You know, it's a very personal decision, but about 75% or more of Americans up to 90%, depending on where you are, believe in organ eye and tissue donation and have become a registered donor through the DMV, through their local chapter. And then people don't know what it is. And they certainly, they don't know what it is as an adult, let alone know how to explain it to a child. So that's why it's in there. Well, let's get, let's get, let's get practical for a moment. You know, we've been talking about the book and being addressed to kids, but as an adult, if any of our listeners do want to do organ donation, um, Isn't there a thing that goes on your driver's license? Yes, there is. You can register with your state. Usually there's a state registry, or you can sign up when you renew your driver's license. You can also do it. If you're an iPhone user, you can do it right through your health app on your iPhone. And basically you can choose, if you go on the state registry, you can choose to select, I'll donate this, but not this. If you donate through the DMV, you're selecting 
I'll donate anything and all that's needed at the time of my death. And it doesn't matter your age and it doesn't matter your cause of death. What we used to say in the organ procurement world in the donation field is let us decide at the time whether we have a treatment for what you died from and whether that's going to help someone else. For instance, you used to not be able to donate organs if you were HIV positive, but because of the advancement in treatment, there are HIV positive patients who need transplants and we can now transplant from patient to patient. So things that used to rule out a person from being able to medically donate are not necessarily rule outs forever. They're just, it depends on what the medicine is at the time of your death. And we don't know when that's going to be. So just, yeah. And I let the professionals rule you in or rule you out. And by the way, in addition to what Michelle has said, um, I, I will pass this on. It's not legal advice, but it's a legal setting. You know, for those of you who have put together an estate plan of yes. whatever size, uh, I invite you to talk to your estate planning attorney yes. and to your spouse, significant other, you know, yes. whoever you've got, both your powers of attorney, by the way, your, me your medical powers of attorney yes. uh, and the trust and or will itself, because there are various issues that you can address even in that as far as organ right. donation and go as far as saying, I'm willing to donate my cornea, my bones, my, mm -hmm. you know, whatever part of me will help somebody else mm -hmm. have a better quality of life, but do right. not use my body for experimentation or right. testing or in a right. medical facility and put me on display. You can even go that far if right. that's your comfort level. That's right. And the thing that some people don't know is it, we've become very familiar of do not resuscitate orders where there's no life-saving acts admitted in the case of your death, but that can interfere with your ability to become a donor. And so yeah. for me on my healthcare designation, it's um, do not keep me alive if I'm, I have no chance of recovery only keep me alive for the length of time it would take for me to become an organ cornea or, or tissue donor. So depending on what's needed, only keep me alive for that period of time, which is different than a do not resuscitate. Do not resuscitate. Will... Well, and, and I've got to tell you again, I don't want to take it too far beyond too far. the book. The book <laughs> yeah, it's is, true. <laughs> but I, I can tell you horror stories about DNRs, do not resuscitate yes. orders. And the fact, I mean, I, I, I did CPR on one lady for 45 minutes mm. and then they found I had already started and then they found the and, DNR oh. and nobody knew about it and you yeah. you don't stop after you start you start no and no, no, no. so you know it, it it's things like that by mm -hmm. the way that I can clearly imagine a child experiencing at home right mm -hmm. if you have a loved one in hospice for example mm -hmm. uh and I, I clearly remember the first time I ever experienced hospice, the nurse said, do not call 911. Right. Because it will literally override right. everything we're doing here. Right. Call and, us. And I can imagine, I was an adult at the time, but I can imagine a little kid saying, why aren't you doing something? That's right. Yeah. And yeah, so it would really be part confusing. of that discussion. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to move to a later part of the book that you have, okay. because I think it's, it, again, every part of the book is critical, but you've got a part in here talking about funerals and memorials, yeah. developing memories. Why is that so important for little kids? 
Oh, well, in the research on children's grief, children who are included in a memorial or funeral do better than those who are not allowed to be included. So it's very important, it, you know, even the littlest ones that you child friendly give them choice about participating. So in other words, there is something about being a part of a gathering where people normalize grief and normalize telling stories about the person who died. Sometimes there's even a body that they can see and begin to, to grasp the concept of what is alive and what is dead and that their loved one is no longer alive. And all of those steps that happen at a viewing, at a gathering, from the social part to the practical cognitive brain understanding part are so vital when it comes to children. So whether it's a funeral or a memorial, whatever the family has decided, bringing those kids, preparing them for what they'll see and hear, giving them a buddy that can give them a break if they need to go and play and, and you know, remember to take them to the bathroom and that kind of thing, but allow them in a kid-friendly way to approach this lifespan experience, right? We're born and we die. This, those are the two things that will happen to every single one of us. We're born and we will die. And we don't do a really good job of integrating the death part of the cycle. Well, you know, talking about that, I, I've mentioned before my earliest memory of death was my uh, favorite uncle uh, who meant an, 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 uh, the world to me, right? And I remember being taken to his funeral with an open casket mm -hmm. and I was so little, all I could see was his nose. Oh, I never got to see him. Oh, nobody lifted you up. Nobody lifted me up, but it, yes. you know, we walked, we walked into the room and there's the casket and there's his nose. <laughs> well, that's that my last so memory confusing. of him. There's his nose. And then, of course, obviously, as you get closer to the casket to pay your respects, you can't see anything as a little kid looking up. No. Um, another memory I have is, again, another uncle, where all the kids were told to stay by the cars for the oh, internment, no. oh, and all the adults went over, oh, which no. then led to, and, I, and I'm, I'm telling this story because I think it is an important thing for you uh -huh. as a grief counselor to, to impress on everybody and why this book is so important. Later on, I'm 13 years old, and one of my, uh, my actually my best friend was shot and killed uh, oh. in an act. It was an accidental shooting, by the way. Oh. Um, and I happened to be there. I, I was across the street, heard the gunshot, ran over. That's all I remember. Yeah. It was an open casket. Yeah. And I, 13 years old, was. I don't know if I was scared. I don't know if I was just manifestly uncomfortable. I didn't want to look at a dead body. Yeah. How important is it for, for kids? Again, yeah. I'm 13 at that point, but mm -hmm. how important is it for little kids in their little kid brains mm -hmm. to actually understand death? Oh, or do we treat it like Santa Claus with them? Oh no, it's, it's, it's vastly important for them to understand death. If they are given a choice and they're not ready to participate in viewing the casket or the person in the hospital or the deceased body, then see if, if pictures are possible so that they can at a later time 
look when their brain is developed and ready. So it, it's really important for being able to grasp the concept that the person has died. Well, with that in mind, and in light of the fact that you said a picture, um, probably the last thing that I'm going to ask you about today is, again, mm -hmm. one of my favorite parts uh, of the book, and that's where you talk about future rituals. Yes. So it's never too late, right, to help your child address nope. somebody who has died, address their grief, that's right. and help them because we, we've done a whole show on this, right? You really don't right. get over grief. You work, you walk you with integrate it. Integrate it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So again- It's never too late. How, impor how mm -hmm. important is it for you, from your perspective as a therapist for kids to understand if you don't want to do this right now, right? there's still time. Absolutely. It, whether it's a gathering in a park or at a beach or on a mountainside or a part of the scattering, or a memorial walk, or a memorial picnic, or balloon release, or they have these lantern releases, anything that helps ritualize the acknowledgement of the loss in a child's life or an adult's life. So ongoing, that's the other thing that the research shows, is finding a way to continue remembering the person who died while still living your life is one of the other things in the research that helps both adults, children, and teens. So whether that's drinking from your loved one's favorite coffee cup, sleeping on their side of the bed if your spouse or partner died, uh, putting their t-shirt over a pillow and snuggling with it, whether you're a child or a teen, you know, it, um, build a bears with the person's heartbeat inside of it is something I've seen. Tattoos, uh, memorial tattoos, whatever speaks to you and your relationship with the person, um, a little altar on a bookshelf or the mantle with their photo or some of their special things carrying a picture of them on your phone, putting a memento in your pocket for big occasions. So big things like honoring their birthday or their death date on a regular basis um, over the years, or little things like their coffee cup or their t-shirt or carrying a special watch, pocket watch in your pocket because it's from them. All those things are a way to integrate the grief and honor what that person meant to you. Very nice. The book is Help Me Understand, a guide to help children understand hospitals, death, and organ cornea and tissue donation, written by our very own Michelle Post. That's me. Um, again, I invite you guys to connect with Michelle. Again, Michelle, how's the best way to do that? Through my website, postinternationalinc.com. And if you sign up for my blog, definitely add me to your white pages so I don't go to your spam. <laughs> yeah do, do that and then michelle will let all of us know when the book is formally released uh and it should be available through amazon among others and yes. we will notify you through that uh, michelle thank you for letting me interview you thank you for thank this you. book it's absolutely wonderful thank you scott uh, and uh it's it's been fun next week yes next week oh boy this is going to be a good one Ooh. we're going to talk about Ooh. bickering yes and how it could save your marriage. Yeah. Healthy Think about fighting. That. Bickering and how it could save your marriage. So yeah. we're, we're going to chat about that. Uh -huh. uh, and then 
the following week, just as a little tease after that, we're going to do a show on how to let your partner be right, said no one ever. <laughs> so we're going to take we're going to take this whole concept of bickering and how there's actually healthy ways mm-hmm. to do that, mm-hmm. uh, not only for your sanity, but the health of the relationship. Uh-huh. And then also, again, I've said this before, you know, the movie I grew up with, right? Love means never having to say you're sorry, probably uh-huh. ruined more marriages and Agreed. relationships. Agreed. Uh, and so how to let your partner be right. Yes. Okay. If you're, if you're not in a partnership, I think our concepts will help you get along with coworkers and family members and friends. So don't rule yourself out if you're not married. There you go. I, <laughs> frankly, I think we're going to be talking. I know we're going to be talking about uh, stuff that you can even say how to let yourself be right. Yes. Big concept, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. With that, thank you all for listening. Until next time. Bye-bye. You've reached the end of another episode of Keeping Your Together in a Stressed World with Michelle Post and Scott Grossberg. If you like our show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate our broadcast, and leave a review. The podcast is for general information only and not intended to be legal or mental health advice, nor the formation of a lawyer-client, nor therapist-patient relationship. Stay tuned for our next episode, and thank you for listening.